Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. So glad to have a place to talk politics and culture and important stuff without a bunch of screamers, except for me, I scream sometimes. <laughs> and that way we can get to some nuance, do some deep dives, and we don't mind having some fun either. And as always, if you like the show, tell a friend. Listeners recommending our program to their friends and family who might like it is the number one way word gets out about what we're doing here. I am your host, Corey Nathan, going solo today, and I am so grateful to introduce today's guest for one reason, because I've been really wanting to talk more about the younger generations in our country, Gen Y, Gen Z, as well as youth leaders who work with them. Jeff Harding is the area coordinator of National Network of Youth Ministries, which means he's a leader of leaders. He's also a youth minister at Trinity Fellowship Church and the founder and host of the Youth Ministry Maverick podcast. And I'm going to break some news here. He is a soon-to-be prolific author. <laughs> uh, we, we could edit that out if I get that completely wrong. But no, yeah. actually, actually, he is a, a prolific author because I've been ensconced in reading a bunch of his articles and have really learned a great deal, really appreciated what he's contributed. So pleased to have Jeff with us here today. Jeff, thanks for joining us. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Corey. I appreciate it. And soon for that is definitely relative, but uh, sure, soon, if you say so. We're, we're in the, uh, the, what is it called? The time something continuum? The time <laughs> continuum? Yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, an interesting tidbit about me that kind of makes sense, if you know me, is that I went to the same high school as Bruce Springsteen. So it was interesting to learn in one of those articles that you went to the same high school as Alice Cooper. I sure did. <laughs> Is there any uh, significance to that or just one of those bits of trivia that's fun to toss around every now and then? It's just a bit of trivia. Uh, you have to understand that my high school is tiny. My, my entire high school is not even the size of an average graduating class in, in Texas, you know, so very, very small. In fact, I met someone when I started here on staff at Trinity who not only went to Arizona State where I did undergrad, but also went to my high school and lived on my block. Oh, wow. And our church is under 200 people. And so to come to, to, come to the Dallas area and find someone who grew up like five or six houses down from me and went to my, like, I'm like, really? That's crazy. So you just never know where you're going to end up. But yeah, Alice or uh, Vince or Vincent is his, right. his real name, but yeah, he grew up in the Phoenix area and he still has a restaurant there, Cooperstown. And, uh, yeah, he's, he's still a big deal in, in Arizona for sure. That's pretty cool. The other Arizona connection, and I don't know if this is a stretch. I, I was trying to make the connection there, but youth ministry Maverick, does that have something to do with your Arizona, the Maverick part? Does that have something to do with your Arizona connection? It does. It does. Um, so aside from the Dallas Mavericks, which my wife is a diehard fan of, <laughs> John McCain actually went to my home church during the presidential campaign of 08. Oh, and wow. as many people knew him to be, 
uh, a maverick. Yeah. And so when I thought about my approach toward ministry and the philosophy I take toward developing leaders, you know, I thought about the unconventional approach, outside the box approach, mainly because there is so much good content out there for youth ministry. And so, you know, when a friend of mine said, why don't you do a podcast? And I thought, not, not only thought, but I told her, what would I add? There's more <laughs> than 30 mainstream youth ministry podcasts who are killing it, who are doing a great job, lots of things. I feel like I would just add to noise. Um, and so when I thought about my approach, I don't think it's original necessarily, but it's a little unconventional outside the box. And so merging of those two ideas with John McCain, the Dallas Mavericks, youth ministry maverick and you wouldn't believe how long i combed through hundreds of mostly defunct podcasts to make sure that was an original name and it is so so the maverick part of it what is for lack of a better word what's particularly mavericky about the way that you're doing youth ministry or about the podcast sure yeah so um yeah not every episode is some groundbreaking topic um it's not all turn things on their head. Um, we do talk a lot about common issues and approaches to local church youth ministry, but I also have people on who, you know, speaking of this podcast right here, uh, you know, I've had several people on to talk about politics. Politics is a no-no in church, certainly one in youth ministry. It's just awkward and there's a lot behind that and families and, and what they hold dear, which I, I recognize. I've had a wedding planner on, a professional <laughs> wedding planner to talk about how, you know, when we guide people in general, but certainly children and youth workers who are trying to guide students toward this idea of what a relationship should be and how it should be healthy. She talked about the awkward, never talked about weird in between season of being engaged and then moving to the wedding and how that couple interacts during that time and how it can actually be a very lonely time and how we need to reorchestrate how we perceive relationships all the way through, whether it's single, whether it's married, whether it's an anticipation of being married and that kind of thing. So um, there's a number of other people I've had on to talk about topics that you don't hear in a usual Sunday school setting or even just a local church youth ministry setting. but nevertheless, important topics to think about either as a leader for yourself or certainly to model and pass on to your students. And a lot of that is wrapped around my philosophy of doing a podcast, of doing ministry. Like I said, it's not original, but it's really focusing on teaching students how to think, not just mm. what to think. Yeah. Um, and I think that is one of the many reasons why whatever study you look at 60, 70, 80 plus percent of kids after high school at some point walk away from their faith and discipleship is the big umbrella for that. But um, a big reason is just giving them the right answers and they're just right because they have the right answers, but not teaching them to own their faith. Think about why they believe what they believe, lean into doubt, continue to ask questions, learn to ask better questions. And so that's what my guests help me do. I have so many questions now. Um, <laughs> so uh, you brought up politics and since we're politics and religion, um, you've been working in youth ministry for over 15 years, almost 20 actually. Uh, so it makes sense that you went to seminary, uh, Dallas Theological. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But some folks might not know that you did your undergrad at Arizona State in poli-sci and government. I did. 
were you thinking of going in a different direction at some point or was that part of the overarching plan? Yeah. So I actually changed majors three times uh, in college, uh, which I think is just under or right around the average. I've heard four or five times. Um, But I started out in my first semester of college because I really didn't know the exact path I wanted for college, even though since the age of 16, I've known I've wanted to do what I'm doing now. But I didn't want to get an undergrad in ministry per se, because I didn't know the timeline of how long it would be until I had that job, if and when I would go to seminary, what that would look like. So I wanted an undergrad originally in something that, hey, it's a practical skill. It's a good field where I can get my feet wet and do things. And because I just didn't know exactly what that was yet, my first semester of college uh, was business management. And after realizing how much I really despised math. I quickly got out of that. And from that, from that point on, all the way up until the end of my junior year of college, I was a secondary ed major. And I figured what better training for youth yeah. ministry than secondary education. And two subjects I really thrived in and enjoyed in high school were English and social studies or government, things like that, history. I thought about being a history major. My mom is a history major. But at the time, I'm like, ah, names and dates, that's kind of boring. And I really liked the function of government and the role and all that. Spoiler, if if I could go back now, I would be a history major in a heartbeat because I feel like that would actually serve me better now based on just discussions I'm having and things like that. But the role of government is very important. It's the practical working out of how to help people flourish. And, um, you know, I was really enjoying the historical parts of it, but also the function of it. And so after my third literature survey course, I'm like, I can't do this English thing. So I switched (laughs) to secondary ed poli sci. Okay. And I was doing that for a good year and a half. And then the end of my junior year, uh, I finally got into the education program at ASU. There was this big mix up and a big change and some some prereqs have changed our structure the program have have changed and my advisor told me you're gonna have to add a minimum of two more years to your undergrad oh, wow. to do all these things and i thought i don't need that degree for that for that field that much i feel like i can do things i, I need to do without that and so i just dropped the education part and stuck with political science so yeah. I graduated in May of 08 with a poli-sci degree, uh, took a year off, paid off some debt, yeah. uh, and then moved out here to Dallas in 09 to start at DTS. And uh, did you put yourself through um, seminary? Uh, was that when you were working at the credit union? For a guy who doesn't like math, you worked almost four years at, at a credit union. <laughs> I did. But, you know, the, the hardest math was, you know, plus and minus and yeah. as a keypad and calculators doing things. You know, that the highest level math I ever did in high school was pre-cal, and that was a headache for me. And so, um, yeah, higher level math can't do it. So so <laughs> I'm interested, actually, uh, working as a teller at a credit union, how, especially while you were in seminary, how did the, the work at the credit union shape your theological convictions? And, <laughs> you know, it, does it affect how you run youth ministry now? And Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Well, uh, certainly from the customer Uh, service aspect. Lots of stories I could share there. But no, actually, my time at the credit union ran right up against when I moved here to Dallas. And so I did that all through college. Oh, Uh, And when I got here, I did look into getting a job at a credit union because I was able to work out the shifts 
when I was back in Phoenix, where I was a full-time student at ASU in Tempe. And then I was working at least 30 or so hours a week, 24 to 30 hours a week, depending on the week up in the Northwest Valley. So my senior year of high school, I put over 500 miles a week on my car. Yeah. Now I had, now I had a civic, so it's no big deal. Um, but coming <laughs> here, I thought, Hey, if I can line up the, the same way, maybe stack some of my classes, take advantage of online classes and work three days a week for these shifts or whatever, but no credit union in the area had availability like that. They all needed people who were full-time or if they were part-time, they needed certain hours that I just couldn't swing as a full-time grad student. And so I ended up working at a doctor's office for oh. a year uh, at the front desk, uh, scheduling appointments, handling records. And then I came on staff at the church I was volunteering at, Fellowship Bible Church Dallas, as, as the junior high director. And I used that for two years as both work and experience and as my official internship for my DTS program. And then when I graduated, I got the job here at Trinity but as far as like work interaction, yeah, actually from the credit union to working at the doctor's office, that juxtaposition of what people care about mm. is something that I do carry with me and did carry with me into um, seminary and really kind of working out and thinking about my philosophy of ministry. It's interesting to me um, in a lot of practical ways, maybe even subconscious ways, how obvious and blatant it is that people care so much more about money and their financial standing than their own health. That's interesting. And uh, that to me was very interesting to think about. Also, as far as like the sociology idea. And so I was two or three classes away from minoring in sociology because I took so many of those classes for electives because they were interesting. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, sociology 101, I'll, not, I'll never forget that class in the first day. He's like, you, when you're studying people, the main thing you have to leave at the door is common sense because you'll discover that common sense is not common. <laughs> it's not common. And so, yeah, just seeing that juxtaposition for so many years of people and how fired up they get about a non-sufficient funds fee or about not being able to transfer because you don't have the right documentation for joint this or federal federal regulation for money, for money transfers and for cash transactions and different things versus news from blood labs that they would get that I would deliver or the importance of following that up. It's like, yeah, whatever. And it, that to me was very interesting. And I think says a lot about maybe even what Jesus says about, you know, it's harder for a rich man. Camel through a needle. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, so that, that part from the sociological um, aspect and engaging you know, in, in children's or youth ministry, you're doing a lot of FaceTime with parents. And there's a sizable amount, unfortunately, of people who work in family ministry or even teachers in public schools, private schools, or instructors or coaches who not only don't enjoy uh, engaging with parents, but despise working with parents or engaging with them. And sometimes look at parents as the enemy, which I think is extremely unfortunate and not biblical. Certainly. So those, those kinds of jobs that I had throughout college, throughout seminary, the different internships I've had in different states, working with different huge camps of a thousand plus people in California, traveling to do worship at a retreat in a small town in Texas over a weekend, just all the different people I've been under as far as a mentorship and places I've been interacting with different people in different settings and cultures within the U.S. It's very 
it's been a huge help to me and I've very much appreciated it and benefited from it. So you mentioned that it was startling that folks tend to care more about their money and finances than they do about their health. You had also mentioned earlier that uh, talking about politics in the church is a big no-no. I've made an observation that in a lot of in a lot of church settings, folks actually care more about their politics than their theology. So an example that we used is um, that, you know, a church that I was going to, there was a definite position on things like uh, how to do baptism. Uh, there was definite uh, church position on how to um, take communion, but you wouldn't necessarily get in a heated argument in the church body about those things. But, you know, if you were to say in 2008, a bad word about Sarah Palin, them's fighting words, you know, people really mm-hmm. feel passionate about that or certain issues. People really feel um, passionate about that. Now, as a youth minister, I have a specific question about this. Have you noticed that there is a divide between Gen Y, Gen Z folks and their parents' generation, say uh, Gen Xers like me or uh, baby boomers? Or is there a divide between certain default social and political positions that you've noticed and what kind of tension has that caused if if there is? Yeah, great question. Uh, There definitely is, but it's not as black and white or direct as you might think. Gen Y or millennials, my generation, I think we serve in several ways as a bridge and a different transition point between Gen X and Gen Z, and not just because of their chronology and passing of time. Each generation has very distinct things and characteristics that make it unique and distinct. And, you know, with with millennials, the way that we've gone through high school, college, and then come into the working world. And, you know, as of still a, a few years ago, people blaming millennials for spring break stuff or whatever. And we're like, hey, some of us are almost 40. Like, stop blaming us for stuff about spring break. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, millennials are the ones who really brought about and championed the idea of working from home, um, of a shorter work week of, hey, you know, if I can get all my work done, then why do I need to work Monday through Friday? How about Monday through Thursday? Or things like that. Really being the generation at the right place and right time, because based on how old you were, sometime in late elementary to early high school, um, having America online and having the idea of the internet come about and it to be more than just uh, something to uh, post game scores or to post, you know, just big headline news. You know, we're we're the generation that really took that and took it to a next level and really helped integrate that into the workplace, into the marketplace, um, into how people interact with and get their news and get their information. And, you know, if you've watched the, I forget what the name of it is, the documentary on Netflix about the internet and um, interviews a lot of people, the social something. The the social dilemma or something like that? Social dilemma. That's it. That's it. Um, A lot of the, the, developers of that, you know, there's Gen X and some millennial people who developed all those algorithms and different and different programs. And, and at the end of the documentary, they're like, we opened Pandora's box and we're sorry. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different 
things that can be said about technology as well. But the main point of that is how millennials have taken technology and kind of integrated it and made it mainstream, made it necessary in a lot of different fields. Gen Z, as a result, have only known technology. They've only known it. And Gen Z is the biggest generation in history. It's the way you put it was biggest generation ever with the shortest attention span ever. <laughs> That's right. What, yeah. what can go wrong with that? <laughs> and uh, a lot of that has to do with technology. Yeah. And, you know, I, there are lots of posts and podcasts at other places that just demonize technology. And I'm not here to do that. And you can't reverse the, the, the tide. Um, I heard a report that Hurricane Ida um, actually reversed the flow of the Mississippi River. And as much as we might push against technology, it's only flowing in one direction, just like television, just like any kind of other media, you know, it's only flowing in one direction and it can be capitalized for good things and has. Um, look at examples of GoFundMe, look at examples of communication with loved ones and soldiers overseas. Um, look at all these different examples of people who can find churches or find ministries or find people to help them that if they didn't have the internet or have access to that, they wouldn't have had, you know, there's a lot of good things about that. But because of how technology has really inundated our world and specifically and primarily Gen Z, it's really affected a lot of things. I mean, it's literally biologically affected their brains and gray matter, you know, socially, it's really impacted them. And you can have your whole life and persona um, without ever having to leave your bedroom, you know, your online view of yourself, you can look at in the in the context of filters on Instagram or Snapchat, you can look at it in the context of how you destroy somebody in, a, in an online debate in a, in a comment thread, you know, just the idea of what Gen Z is looking for. Ironically, in all of that, study after study shows that they value authenticity a lot more than other generations do. They really want to know who you are and why you believe what you believe and why you consider it to be important. They're not the generation to sit back and listen to a teacher say, I'm the teacher, so you can't question me. Just listen to what I'm saying. You know, they want to kind of push back like, well, no, actually, I don't believe that. And I, and I read this and they're not afraid to ask that question. Barna is a great group and I have both volumes of their Gen Z studies and 91% of Gen Z have no problems and no hesitation questioning somebody on what they said or their beliefs. 91%. Oh, that's interesting. And they, they don't mind pushing back because they want to see what's underneath the facade. They want to see who's behind the big green curtain. They want to be able to see why people do what they do. And if they're doing something um, that either they, they don't agree with, which is a whole nother issue, or because they find that they're actually faking something or whatever else, they want to expose that. And there are some good reasons to do that. But also that can become a selfish tirade that leads into um, extreme uh, reactions to things. And when you find extreme reactions in culture, you'll find an equally extreme reaction in a different way. And I think it's a law of physics, uh, a lot of <laughs> physics, physics was my favorite science. Uh, I can get behind the uh, practical formulas of momentum and moving and that kind of thing. But uh, I think 
that's very, very broad and the other variables for sure. But I think a lot of that mindset and perspective is what has led to our polarized society now. And a huge push of momentum is from older generations and how stuff's been boiling over about anger or bitterness based in partisanship, based on uh, linking up and not being able to separate theology and political ideology. When you mentioned seeing a divide and how people care more about politics and their theology in the church, I would say yes. And a big reason for that is because they look at those as, in, as interchangeable and synonymous, oh. which, is, which is, you know, in some ways I can see why what you believe and looking at scripture and seeing how it should influence your politics and the way that you interact with others in the world, no doubt. But what can happen is that things become golden cows. I was just thinking that it becomes an idolatry of sorts. Exactly. It becomes idolatry and you end up dying on the wrong hill and you end up dying on a lot of hills and none of them resemble Calvary. Yeah. None of them resemble huh. the main thing. That's an interesting way to put it. Wow. Yeah. And, and so you have this generation now that's starting to move up. And this year, um, I believe, depending on if a youth program starts as, as sixth grade or whatever else, we have Generation Alpha coming up now. And the earliest studies have shown, it doesn't make sense to me, I need to read more about it. Early studies have shown actually that Generation Alpha has a longer attention span than Gen Z. And that to me is very perplexing. That doesn't make sense. And I'm wondering because they're even more inundated with technology. Right. And maybe it's millennial parents, maybe it's Gen Z people kind of realizing, oh man, and kind of trying to look at videos and look at the effects of screen time and things like that. You know, it's interesting how uh, over the last several years here in, in our youth group, um, whenever we talk about technology or social interaction online, if we ask a question, hey, put yourself as a parent in 15 years or 20 years and yeah, and your child really wants a cell phone or social media, what, what would you say to them? And across the board, guys, girls, nope, nope, nope wouldn't give it to them. Wow. And they're the ones buried in their phones. Yeah. They're the ones who really uh, 80, 80 plus percent of their generation gets anxiety uh, if they don't have their phone somewhere within reach, you know, and they're the ones who are saying, yeah, no, we, we recognize that it's bad. We're in it and it's in our lives. And, but we recognize it's not good. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, you know, that, that kind of perspective and how they carry themselves, I think speaks also to, even though they're inundated in, with certain things, they still value what really matters. And for Gen Z specifically, that's authenticity. Yeah. Um, that's being able to back up what you say and why you say it. Yeah. So the generational divide, I think it does have an influence on the divides that we see in church. And I would agree about the political and theological divide, but the biggest thing, especially in the evangelical space is the melding and inseparableness of your political ideology and your theology. They're the same thing and, and they can't exist on their own. And that to me uh, causes a lot of problems. Yeah. I, I, I have a, working theory about that, or it's really an observation that that is largely because a lot of folks without realizing it start with their political and social preferences and back their theology into it. 
Yes. Uh, as opposed to going the other way around. If we're believers yes. and we believe in the authority of scripture, we start with mm -hmm. scripture. And sometimes it says stuff that we're not comfortable with. We have other uh, positions that we had socially or politically. We're like, oh, how do I reckon that now? You know, and that mm -hmm. should happen. That should, you know, uh, scripture should be conviction. The, the word of God should be convicting. But, um, you, you know, you brought up a couple of things. I, I, I want to ask you about a piece that you published in late 2019 your reflections on that year seem to be prescient uh, about what was to come in 2020. Something you said, it's not, you've already touched upon this. You said there are important hills to die on. However, you shouldn't die on every hill or even most hills. Are you teaching your students to listen and love on middle ground or to throw rocks from deeply divided sides? Better yet, are you modeling it for them? So in making that point, <laughs> So I, I live in Santa Cruz Valley, which is the home of Matt, the Masters. Well, it was Masters College, now Masters University. Johnny Max, uh, John MacArthur's. Ah, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. So you cited Johnny Max quip about Beth Moore, go home. <laughs> um, yeah. So for my uh, uninitiated fr friends, uh, Beth Moore has been a very prominent voice among Southern Baptists who subsequently had to leave the Southern Baptist Conference, mostly because she's a woman who has a prominent voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. According to John, Mac John MacArthur, that's a no-no. So I'm actually curious, what kind of response you got to that exhortation when you published that piece, not just from other leaders, but from among the students you, you lead? Yeah, great question. To be honest, I don't really receive a lot of direct feedback about anything I publish. Um, you know, just a I'll bunch get, of grumbling. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that guy. <laughs> even, even that would count as feedback. Um, if, if they're grumbling, they're doing it to themselves, which okay. I guess could be good and maybe not. Yeah. <laughs> but also, um, you know, I I get likes and some shares on on social media for those. But yeah, you know, I I, I really value that space that you specialties has given me to really. Um, voice some things. And of course, you know, as they should, when they're um, opening it up to an ecumenical audience um, at the bottom, they have a disclaimer that, hey, the views of this author don't necessarily reflect the views, which is fine, but it also gives room for needed diversity in the body. And, you know, Revelation 7 is just one example of how diversity is not only good, but a crucial part of the kingdom and a mm. crucial part of God's purpose and plan for how we should interact and uh, dialogue with one another. You know, people are so quick to point out, speaking back to, uh, you know, politics and, and the church, uh, they're so quick to point out Romans 13, submitting to government authorities. Strangely enough, they only seem to do it when it suits them. Right. How about that? Right. And if you look one chapter over in Romans 14, it's so, I'm so glad you said that because oftentimes when we go to like a, a one part of one verse, uh, I like to just keep on reading. Let's keep on. Let's read what came before it, what came after it. You know, even a, a political issue or social issue on um, homosexuality, Romans one. Can we at least read the whole chapter? Not not just the, the one part that refers to homosexuality, but like the whole chapter, because Paul was making a whole bigger other point, you know, than just commentary on on your preferred political uh ideal there but sorry i i interrupted a point that you were making yeah no uh so yeah and romans 14 and looking at how you know paraphrasing of course and, and modernizing the church should should be the place where we can have diverse opinions and perspectives and show true unity the church should be the place for that and we can't look to 
as weird as a disconnect as it is, then I realize it's from a place of privilege that I can that I can say or anyone can say that the the government should not be the big functionary body that should be the one to save us and change everything around us. Because in many practical matters, of course, it is based on just how the human society has been developed and raised and um, what we have. But, you know, whether it's social issues, um, whether it's personal strife and division, whether it's opportunities to help one another and stand up in the midst of a worldwide pandemic, the church should be taking the lead in so many ways and so many things. And yes, there, there are examples of that worldwide. Um, but what's easy to point out, and some might think it's just because we have a critical spirit and it's easier to destroy than to build up, which that's true, but also because there are lots of gaping open wounds. Yeah. American evangelicalism and the Western church especially has, you know, as Mike Myers would say, put the wrong emphasis, you know, on the wrong syllable. Um, <laughs> you know, there are, there are, uh, there are things that we have made important and prominent that even if they are important and prominent, they're, they do not deserve the prominence we have given them. And when that becomes the main cultural message and picture of what the church means, it's easy to see why people have no interest in it. Yeah. It's easy to see why it's simply viewed as something to gain power. And power is at the root of every human issue. I'm concerned, you know, not, not just the root sin nature of selfish, selfishness and everything, but really power is the big struggle and the big catalyst for just about everything we see wrong in the public sphere. You can look at negligence. You can look at all kinds of abuse that's happening. Um, you know, there's just so much that's wrong with that. And as uh, one of my favorite authors and professors, uh, Dr. Daryl Bach, who I've had in the, on the Oh, yeah. He, you had him on uh, the election day. I did. Yeah, I dropped. I love that. What, what is it called? The three... Um... What do you call it? It's like a harmony. You know what I'm talking about? His three. Oh, yeah. Uh, talking to an individual, talking to. Um, tri, triphonic. Triphonic. Yeah. That's, that's it. Oh, that's it. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, that triphonic, which is a musical term, uh, which is great. I'm a yeah. percussionist. Uh, yeah. That idea of there are, there are certain tiers um, of issues to think about and certain ways we should think about how we engage with others. Um, speaking of the book that he wrote that dropped around then called Cultural Intelligence. And uh, it's a great, it's actually a really great way to consider how we engage with others. Um, there was actually a couple different concepts in there. Since, since you brought it up, I do want to bring this up. Yeah. So it's not just talking about on an individual basis. Uh, it's beyond that. The other two layers are um, talking within the context of our community and then talking even more broad scale, talking within the context of our culture. And then when it comes to culture, there's a difference between talking about culture and engaging in culture. Yes. I thought that, that um, what's his first name? Uh, Daryl. Daryl Bach. Bach. Mm-hmm. I thought he had some incredible insights and it was really equipping because if you, all you look at is Twitter and social media, you, you might think that we've lost the ability to talk to each other and engage in a productive way with each other. You know, and it's one thing if, if we're hanging out with people that agree with us on most things, but hang out with folks that you don't agree on all issues. So I just found Daryl Bach and, and the, 
the name of um, his his book was uh, cultural Cult- intelligence. Cultural intelligence. Great, yeah. great conversation, by the way, on your podcast. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, he. Uh, I'm honored to have people like him to share that space with. Uh, and yeah, and so when what he brings up when it comes to scripture and that issue of power yeah. that I was talking about, he he looks at and focuses on Ephesians five. Uh, and Ephesians five says a lot about the idea of power and submission and all that. And the main analogy and example it gives is marriage, a husband and wife. And, you know, that's one of several passages that brings up the idea of submission and based on your position as either uh, a complementarian or an egalitarian, um, as far as holding women in authority and power uh, in ministry or in general, people look at that and look at the idea of headship, look at the idea of submission and how, the wife has spoken of in relation to the husband and vice versa. But an exercise that I've heard him do several times, I'm grateful for, especially with such, with such an important passage of that, is he, he reads through it a little bit, and then he asks everyone to go through that passage and circle all the words that have to do with power, that re- represent power, and then underline the words that have to do with or that highlight service and mm. humility what you're going to find in that passage is almost entirely the idea of service and humility. And that's how Jesus modeled it. That's how we are to model it in the idea of going out of our way to lift up, encourage, sacrifice ourselves for the needs of others. That's how Christians should hold and wield quote unquote power. And we have, seen the opposite of that in a lot of different spheres here in western in western christianity whether that's you know someone like jerry falwell jr uh whether that's someone like robbie zacharias whether that's um you know just a lot of very unfortunate realities of power getting the best of us and having people protect that power because of results and because of you know quote unquote all of the help and good that it's doing and yeah it's interesting you bring this up because i i wanted to ask you about a really difficult subject um someone who works with other leaders in youth ministry uh i'm sure you've learned about the tragic history of sexual abuse that occurred at the very popular christian camp canacook is that how you say yes. it? Mm-hmm. that's right so uh for those who don't know over the course of many years it, there were just you know it, it's an extreme and abominable example of just harmful criminal criminal behavior. Yes. But one of the things you, you sort of broached this, um, that it, one of the things that arguably made it worse was the camp's way of dealing with it. There were any number of actions that they took to that, that hid what was going on and kept victims silent. And, and not that, uh, I mean, not that you or any of your colleagues are guilty of such atrocities. So I wouldn't have you answer for that. But, but there is a tendency on the part of many ministries to deal with lesser sins, lesser uh, breaches in such a way that we, we justify it by saying, you know, that the, the ministry is doing so much good or, or we have to assure the survival of the ministry, something along those lines. Have you, have you dealt with not necessarily sexual abuse, but other forms of unhealthy or we can say sinful behavior and how have you dealt with it? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I personally, gratefully have not had to deal with any of that as far as my own leaders, students, or families, as far as anything that that grievous. Um, anything else that involves, you know, 
hard issues as far as self-harm, as far as depression, as far as, by the way, this generation Gen Z is also the most depressed and anxious generation. Mm. Um, and the pandemic, depending on the age group and specific demographic within Gen Z, tripled and even quadrupled those elements in wow. Gen Z. And uh, yeah, a lot of those things, I uh, going back to what I mentioned as far as my philosophy of ministry, I engage those things in the family perspective. I don't engage it just with a student or just with a parent, unless it's certain things just with a parent, you know, but really I engage it holistically um, with the family um, and tying in, you know, uh, certainly depending on what it is uh, at a confidential level with other church leaders and our, our staff, because we really want to care for those that we're with. And we realize that there's a lot of different ways that a lot of different methods and a lot of different perspectives and, and, and scenarios on what those can be. Um, and Deuteronomy 6 and a litany of other passages, Old and New Testament, make it very clear that parents are the primary disciple makers of their students. And you take any Christian or secular study that you want, parents are the main influential figures in their child's life, period. It doesn't matter if they, if they didn't even know their parents that biological tie influences them, you know, and people make light of, oh, you have daddy issues or, oh, there's whatever else. There's a reason why we're created the way that we're created. And parents are the primary influencers and scripture says disciple makers of the students. Um, when I bring up our new families into the youth ministry, I have a meeting um, with those families and with the students. And while I'm giving them like a journal or some packet of information about here's what to expect over the next six years or so, you know, I make it clear to parents um, and I break it down hours wise. And I say, look, if your student is here every Sunday morning, every youth program, every mission trip, every retreat, every recreational event, the entire time, all six years, middle school and high school, hours wise, in about six years, it's about five months. Hmm. So there's no way that I or our leaders can be the ones who comprehensively spiritually develop and help mature your students. It's you. It's our main job to equip you to help do that well. And while they are with us, we do want to maximize and capitalize on that time. But if we don't help you do that at home, and in the next season of life where they're still going to be with you and know you, even if they move away to school or whatever else, then we're not doing our job. And that I think is also another huge reason why the numbers for kids walking away from their faith after high school is so large is because mm -hmm. the idea of streamlined discipleship, the idea of really emphasizing and championing parents as the influence and as the church should be helping the parents primarily with resourcing and equipping them even more than putting thought into pulling off the perfect sermon or the perfect game or the perfect youth program. That's a big reason why I think the stats show what they are. Yeah. You know, you touched on this already, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. You made a point in your 2020 review that was startling. You said, we can't believe the lie that bringing up mental health will make it worse. So again, I live in Johnny Mac country where they believe psychology is a bunch of, you know, bunk. Mm -hmm. uh, so while this isn't entirely surprising, it is startling that even mental health 
is part of this illusion of a culture war. Has this really been something that that you've been coming up against? And uh, how do you how do you confront such a such a notion? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, yeah, I have dealt with it personally, and certainly with students and families that I've engaged with, not only here at at Trinity. And not even just students and families, but, you know, just people in the church, staff, whoever else. But also, uh, you know, as I look back at my time doing internships, uh, different churches, different workplaces, you know, I realize how sad it is that certainly within the church and more especially within the church culture, but even the culture at large for such a long time had such a stigma against mental health and all the pain that it's caused, all the fallout and tragedy that has resulted from that. You know, we are very complex beings. And I tell my students all the time, emotions are not, are not a result of the fall. We were created with emotions to feel as God feels because they are important. And we see characteristics of God as far as his jealousy, as far as his love, like as far as anger, as far as joy, like there are there are reasons why we are created the way that we that we are. What comes to mind too is the is the greatest commandment: love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Absolutely, absolutely, and you have to hold all those together. And so, when there is brain, when there are brain chemistry issues, when there are, when there's external stimuli that affects how we're biologically mentally, emotionally, physically put together and how we view things, how we view ourselves is, is all death, sickness, whatever, theologically speaking, a result of the, of the fall. Sure. But some of the components of based on how we were created are not part of the fall. They've simply been corrupted. Mm. And that's down to the smallest blood vessel. That's all the way up to the largest planetary body in the cosmos, you know, like there's everything scripture says creation itself is broken and fallen and will be restored and made new again. And, um, it's not just human beings, it's everything. And, um, yet God called it good. And it is good because especially as human beings, we reflect the image of God. We're made in his image, but mental health has been such, it's been something that's been ignored ridiculed, pushed aside. And yeah, we're, we are seeing so much fallout from that. And unfortunately, in this hyper politicized culture and world, examples of people having fallout from that are pushed as all oh, a bunch of snowflakes, yeah, oh, yeah. a bunch of wimps. And yeah, that, that, that makes it better. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that's loving the Lord and loving others. And, you know, someone brought it up once and uh yeah i was talking to joel Mamby, who was the ceo of SeaWorld, and he's the uh chairman of the board for orange and um he, he brought up a line that i thought was brilliant and i've thought about that ever since and used it in some of my writing is you know too many churches focus way more on the great commission than the great commandment and the great commandment is kind of an afterthought, like, well, you know, if, if we can do that, but the main thing is this, you know, right, and that leads right. to the mentality of carving notches on your gun belts for conversions or for influence or whatever else. And the way that Jesus engaged and modeled, especially with non-believers, especially with people in that culture who were Gentiles, who were Samaritans, dirty people, as far as, as maybe even his disciples and a lot of people around in that culture would perceive them as the way he engaged them 
with love and grace, yet truth for sure. But the way he engages with them is so crucial. And something that Daryl Bach pointed back to with that is how you say something is as important, at just as important as what you're saying. You can be saying the right thing, but you know, you can be yelling at someone who's drowning, hey, you need to do this and grab onto this and so you can be saved. You're not helping them. The way that you actually address them, calm them down. You know, there's a reason why law enforcement has a, um, professional negotiators to work with hostage situations or whatever else. We are relational beings. We need to be talked with, not just talked to. Yeah. And it's so important and such an important model for how we engage with others that reflects Christ in us, that reflects what we are supposed to do as the bride of Christ, as the main vehicle to proclaim and show God's kingdom and his love for us and why that changes everything and why it's the most important thing and why we are worth the life and death of his son on the cross and that we have hope because Christ is risen. And it's something that because of power, because of polarization, because of whatever else, um, it's just something that's gotten twisted and contorted along with how our emotions have, how mental health has, and uh, it's it, it gets lost in the mix, and it's dangerous, and we see the fallout from it all around us, and we're doing a better job. I feel like the church overall, and culture for sure, is has responded and is doing a much better job and is trending in the right direction regarding the importance of mental health, mm. but uh, it's still something, as you mentioned, you know, in different evangelical circles or whatever circle you want to label and name, it's still this, at, at best, oh, something that people only need if they're on the brink of this. And it's just like the ultimate backup plan, ranging all the way to it's evil, it's baloney, it's witchcraft, it's whatever, you know, yeah. and that's that's a tragedy. Yeah. So uh, a couple more questions and then and then uh, some, some business. But I did want to ask you, in the latter part of 2020, you certainly did not shy away from addressing the numerous contentious issues that were plaguing us, if you will, and still mm -hmm. are plaguing us from racial tensions to the election to uh, the way the polarization is even entered into the, the, the way we deal with the pandemic. Did you get any major pushback from parents on that or other other youth leaders? Uh, I didn't. Well, that's encouraging. Uh, it is. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, as far as general lack of feedback about anything I publish or write, unless it's my own Facebook feed, which, you know, maybe that's a, a story I can share or not. You know, uh, I ended up hiding some of those. I didn't delete them. I hid them uh, because of the contentiousness that got into the comment thread, which happens with anything important posted on Facebook. And uh, I, I have a rule, by the way, I, I post it um, and try to pin it at the top of my my feeds, <laughs> like on, on the TPNR, uh, the TPNR pod on Twitter. Uh, we're all about civil engaging, fun conversations among uh, all neighbors of the human community. We talk politics and religion. We don't always have to agree, but here's the rule. Nonsense will be muted and civility will be blocked and the spreading of proven falsehoods and threats will be reported. <laughs> so those are my rules, my page, yeah. my rules. So. And those, those are great rules. Unfortunately, in this era of disinformation, you know, there's all those things that you listed in your rules people there there's two sides to all that and something you think is 
just an absolute proof and so obvious and evident, people will say, oh, what's really behind that is this. And you haven't read this and don't know this. And if we can find anything, we can argue about it. And that's, that's something that is just another tragedy as well. But those, you know, as, as clear cut as those rules in nature are and would seem to be and you would hope would be, unfortunately, even in there, uh, based on whatever a fact is uh, in today's world, people will just find a way to argue about anything. And they do. Yeah, the sky is blue. Oh, well, you're just influenced by the, you know, your emotional whatever, and you're part of the, <laughs> you know, and let's debate whether it's blue or this or that, you know, like, come on. Sure. Just, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as far as uh, the uh, social uh, political issues I wrote about, about that for you specialties, um, you know, I, I wrote that knowing that I know people who don't agree with me. But, you know, something that I think is very important to maintain as as a vocational minister, as a representative of uh, a national organization with NNYM, uh, with the church, is, you know, leading first with grace, leading first with the gospel and a gospel-centric view of things and honoring people. And, you know, uh, me, just as much as anybody, uh, I can fall into the trap of acting before thinking and speaking out of rage or speaking out of whatever, which is what I did about the incursion on January 6th. You know, it's, there are things that, you know, when, when you see Jesus flags right along with Trump flags oh, and, and Confederate flags in the Capitol. And invoking the Lord's name, invoking, invoking the Lord's name on the floor of the Senate, which is, ab- at, which is absolutely a huge example of using the Lord's name in vain. It's, it's easy for me to, to justify that. However, the way I go about it should still be full of grace and truth, you know, and Jesus holds those together with no issue. And we have to have some big metaphysical scale because we're not as linear creatures able to exude multiple character points with 100% fullness as God can. Uh, How can he be simultaneously 100% just and 100% merciful and loving we, we can't do that. And so we have to try and get like a little bit of this, a little bit of that and mix it together and see what happens. And, you know, the way we conduct ourselves is reflection of who, who Christ is. And that's why, whether the church emphasizes something that, you know, is yeah, important, but not the most important thing, but yet that's what it's known for, or the way that it responds in either extreme, either cheering on or adamantly, denying whatever else, anything that happens, people watch. And how many online civil wars between Christians has the culture sat back and watched and said, why would I want to be a part of that? Mm. And it's, you know, the, the example we should give should be that Romans 14 example. It should be the idea of diversity is welcome. It's not what unites us. What unites us is so much more uh, powerful and more important than anything that can divide us. And yet we're seeing that, especially when we take what should unite us and we use it as a weapon and we tie it to our earthly desires and earthly opinions and earthly ideologies, then you're really yanking the foundation out from under you. And it's no wonder why there's so much tension and fallout and hurt, especially in the evangelical church is because we're using what should unite us and we're taking it as ammo for our side to blast away the other side at all costs and the us versus them 
um, analogy. If it's present at all in scripture, it's on the spiritual plane, not the physical one. Jesus told us how we should engage others, the greatest commandment. And yet it's us versus them at all costs. And there are people in pulpits and people in power with ministries who have no problem saying, no, it is us versus them. And if you're with us, you're with us. If you're not with us, then you're evil, then you're against us and you're being used by Satan. You're a tool of Satan. And you know, how, how right and ironic they are because Satan loves nothing more than division. Yeah. And yeah. wow, is he having a heyday right now in, in our culture, sadly, the evangelical culture. So <laughs> this is a third time I'm bringing up John MacArthur, but he does seem to draw a lot of lines in the sand to use uh, one of the subjects that you grappled with post-election, uh, whether it's six literal 24-hour days or women in leadership or baptism by submersion. And you know, there's there's a long list of either ors, categorical, you know, either ors for him. Do you have any lines in the sand? Are there any mm. either ors for you? Yeah, uh, I would say the most important line in the sand for me is the Nicene Creed, is the absolute foundations of our faith. And are there other things that are also important and should be talked about and uh, opinions and truths that are held and backed up? Yes, but uh, along those lines, uh, people, there are a lot of people who are going to be, who are going to be surprised I don't know how disappointment plays into heaven and uh, really new creation and, and all that, but I don't know if you can be disappointed uh, in heaven about something, but if, if they are, it's going to be that they're seeing certain people in heaven with them. <laughs> there are a lot. There are. Wait, so, I thought you voted for a Democrat once. You're not, it, you're not supposed to be in heaven. <laughs> exactly. Or you voted for a Republican or you've, or you wait, whatever. And, and there are so many people throughout time and who are living today who have very, very strong line in the sand opinions on politics, race, anything else. And they're going to find those people in heaven with them. And how much energy and fire and brimstone will they have shot out at those people at the expense of being a witness, showing the power of reconciliation. People like to ignore that part in 1 Corinthians, how we should be and are messengers of hope and reconciliation, and that should be our message. Reconciliation is at the very heart of the gospel, and the reason why we even have hope in the first place is because Jesus reconciled us to our Creator, to the Father. And how can you look at these polarizing issues, important issues, and say that we shouldn't have reconciliation. Yeah, yeah, that's the whole... The church, again, should be leading the way on that. And yet, because of power, because of dying on the wrong hills, because of emphasizing things that should not be the main thing, we have completely twisted that, wasted opportunities for that, and are doing further damage to, to the world that God loves so much that he sent Jesus for, and really what we should be doing with the time we have here and now. Okay. Good stuff, man. So since I've probably through this interview thoroughly convinced you not to have me on Youth Ministry Maverick, uh, you can get to ask me a question now. <laughs> well, first of all, uh, I am going to have you on okay. and, I, and, and I look forward to that. Yeah. So, you know, uh, this is something that we'll tease out in our interview on my podcast, but, you know, Corey, you've talked to, um, you know, I was honored and shocked that you would have someone like me on your podcast. You've had a lot of high profile people 
on your podcast, White House administrators, high level military personnel, ethics professors, you know, and how have you benefited and how has your faith been strengthened based on everyone you've talked to and, and what you've talked about on this podcast? Wow, that's a great question. There's one conversation that comes to mind that has really helped me in very practical ways. Uh, and, and that conversation is the one that I had with Tommy Givens and Amy Laura Hall. It was a very, very difficult conversation to have because you mentioned Ravi Zacharias, who I'd considered a mentor, a personal friend for a long time. And one of my theological um, go-tos was John Howard Yoder, who Tommy engaged his work when he was doing his doctorate at, um, at Duke. Uh, so having, having really smart people of good faith and goodwill with different backgrounds, different points of view, different training, different vocational experience, uh, be willing to have difficult conversations like that, help me work through different issues. What do I think about this? Whether it's a political issue or a uh, theological issue, which is even more important to me, and, and the practical outworkings of all that. Uh, so, you know, let's face it, you know, if, if I'm being completely candid, there are one or two conversations that we had and, and shared on, on this program that weren't edifying. They were just entertaining. You know, they were kind of the, the, the fast food, <laughs> the candy that we threw out there. But um, by and large, every conversation is, some, is something that I've learned from, whether it's just in the preparation you know, Dr. Errol Southers, I mean, he is, he has a really amazing, respectable career, but reading his work on the threat of domestic terrorism, uh, domestic extremism, and he was doing this work 10 years ago, 15 years ago, uh, was so enlightening to me. And I was, I was doing it that uh, in January of this year, getting ready for our, our interview just after January 6th. And like, this guy's been on this, you know, mission way longer than anybody else was paying attention to it. Um, I mean, that's just one example, you know, or diving into uh, great reporters, uh, great folks, you know, who do great work in the media, Anna Palmer, Daniel Lippman, they're reporters with integrity, you know, they're doing great work. And, I, you know, just diving into their careers and, and the way that they shaped uh, Linda Feldman uh, of the, um, the Christian Science Monitor. I, I mean, that, that's an encouragement that good work is still being done on that front and any other num number of fronts. Uh, so uh, it, it's been encouraging. It's been enlightening. You know, it's definitely expanded my own. Uh, I've taken some blinders off and learned some things. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that question because it's, if nothing else, I've had the opportunity not just to talk to folks but also to dive into their work and their background, including you, uh, that, you know, every guest we've had on, I've learned something from, man, and, and it's good. And, you know, I, I don't want to make too much of this, but, you know, my, my, I might oversimplify my, you know, this, the summary of my theology, but, you know, I believe in the creator God. Um, I believe that, you know, Genesis three, something happened and, and something got messed up in the, the hard wiring. Um, but I also believe that that this creator God is doing 
doing work in his creation and we get to be a part of it, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a grand redemption project and we get to be a part of it. And everything that we say, everything that we do is either contributing to that and uh, Jews think of it as tikkun olam, healing the, the world, um, or, or we're adverse actors in that, right? So this project that we're doing on TPNR, again, not to make more of it than what it is, but I, I ha I'm very cognizant of that. By having these conversations with folks that might have different points of view than I do, or folks that have different life experiences than I do or our listeners do, we're, we're bridging some of this divide. We're redeeming some of what's ailing us as a culture. So I don't know if that answers your question. That's just what comes to mind. So. No, man, I... <laughs> I appreciate that. It does. And I would echo that for myself as well. You know, um, before I really got into the idea of doing seasons for my podcast. So what that means is my first season is 60 episodes, which is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> you know, I really started out with the concept that I want to have a guest on every episode if I can, because I think a dialogue is so much more engaging than a monologue. And I know I don't want to listen to myself talk for who knows how long. And so, you know, in 60 episodes, I had 53, 54 different guests on. And I, and the same, I learned something from all those. And it didn't matter if I had five people listening, you know, I was benefiting from it. I enjoyed it. I think it's helped me in how I engage with people. I think it's influenced my teaching and preaching. I think it's influenced just my idea to really listen and hear what people are saying behind their words, if that yeah. makes sense. And I've enjoyed it so much. And uh, I'm really glad that I started doing it, if nothing else, for how it's benefited me. And I hope benefited others, both, you know, the people who download, but also in how I engage with others, hopefully in a better way because of the conversations I've had. So awesome. Awesome. Okay. So before we wrap up, uh, can you let us know how we can find you, Youth Ministry Maverick, online, and where? how can folks uh, access all the great content that you're doing? Yeah, thank you, man. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to head to youthministrymaverick.com. You'll find all my social media links there. Uh, you'll find a link to uh, all the articles that I've published, to my LinkedIn, to my YouTube channel, which if you search Youth Ministry Maverick on YouTube. Um, it should be the first channel that pops up. You can subscribe to that. Uh, we're on every single podcast platform. You should be able to look us up and listen to us as well. We do video and audio format. And um, yeah, we uh, I have a list of organizations to help you in your own ministry on the website. I have a store if you want to help you know, buy, buy some stuff. Yeah. Buy some stuff that's going to sit and collect dust so I can have, you know, <laughs> 50 cents more in my pocket for to help the podcast. I appreciate that. But uh, yeah, youthministrymaverick.com is the easiest way to find me. I'm at youthministrymaverick on Facebook and Instagram and at YMM underscore podcast on Twitter. Awesome. Awesome. Jeff, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you again. Thanks for, for spending the time with us. Yeah. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks again, Corey. All right. And as always, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button, leave us a review and comments wherever you get your podcast. Most importantly, tell a friend about us Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. 
for Ronnie Nathan. I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam. <laughs>